Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Sandpaper Lullaby Podcast, brought to you by Revelation Records. Check out Rev's new Spotify playlist series, where they tap friends and families to create custom playlists for your listening enjoyment. Delve into the midst of Scott Vogel, Steve Aoki, comedian Jonah Ray, and many others for a good time. Go to Revelation Records on Spotify. That's where it's at. Searching for a light? You've found it. And as always, enjoy Sandpaper Lullaby. like actual day that like mm. me and four friends from our middle school all kind of discovered this thing at the same time uh, I remember between then and that Christmas I got uh, a guitar for Christmas mm. uh, but in that time period all of us being like can we call ourselves punks now you know like making an active like I don't know when it's okay yeah. to like do this it's like we could call ourselves skaters doesn't mean I can even yeah. do an ollie but yeah. I own a skateboard yeah. and me and my friends like ride them around so like I am a skateboarder yeah. but at that point you know you're young. You want to be... Do I have to fill out some paperwork? <laughs> <laughs> you want to be attached to something. That was Brian Gorsigner, our guest this week on Sandpaper Lullaby. Brian has been in such bands as Psych to Die, Forward to Death, and The Nightbirds, for whom he's been the front man for the last 10 years. We recently caught up with Brian in Asbury Park, New Jersey, where we got into what makes the Nightbird so special and how he's curtailed this extended time spent in underground music into a new career. Rock, how did I am? I'm assuming it was in the post uh, Nirvana world, uh, yeah, kind of, yes, definitely, yeah, post. Uh, I got into that stuff first. Um, I was in middle school going mm-hmm. into high school, probably like seventh into eighth grade, kind of thing. Uh, me, all my friends, like you know, that's when you either listen to Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and mm. Pearl Jam and all that stuff, which was the gateway into yeah. the punk stuff, or you didn't, and there was only a small grip of us that even listened to that stuff in my school, which was pretty, at that point, getting pretty huge. Mm. Um, and I remember this summer, seventh grade going into the eighth grade, I remember my friend Eric Dean sh- uh, showed up at like a party or something with a mohawk mm. and uh, and the first Casualties record. What do you think we are now? Tell me what you got. They were the portal? Yeah, they were. I mean, look at the cover of that record. Like, not knowing... I'm I'm kidding. But imagine being uh, 14 or (laughs) whatever, not knowing, like, you know, you're aware the thing that you think is the weirdest thing is, like, Kurt Cobain with bleached hair and wearing an old dirty shirt. And all of a sudden you see, like, studs and mohawks and green hair and leather, and it's like, 
what the hell? You know, yeah. like I going from being completely unfamiliar with that stuff to my mind just yeah. being blown. I could see that because like I remember my brother bringing home that the exploited Troops of Tomorrow record, mm -hmm. and I was like nine or ten, and I was like, holy shit! Like, because it was just so like. Like cartoonish, like you know yeah. what I mean. Like it's it was striking, just, it's cartoonish, yeah, like, but it's super striking. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my god, this must be great. And of course, like, this record sucks. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I ended up like. And I sucked at everything I had tried to that point. You know, mm. it's like I wasn't good at basketball, and uh, you know, everybody's just pretty desperate to find yeah. somewhere to fall in. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was kind of that. So in that time period. Uh, I remember one of my other friends got like the Minor Threat discography, mm -hmm. and then we heard that, and everything was different, but it was all the same to us at that point. You know, yeah. like it, there was no, you didn't know the difference of era or anything between the Ramones and the Casualties and Minor Threat. It all might as well yeah. have come out the same year. We had no idea. Exactly. Um, but uh, getting a guitar that Christmas kind of like set things off. Like I had never even picked up a guitar, but literally starting a band that Christmas mm. uh, that would turn into a band that I would end up going on tour with and stuff mm. like that. But all of us having no idea, you know, the dude that played bass in the band found the, a bass in the garbage and the dude that played drums in that band, his dad was a drummer. Mm. So naturally he was, there was a drum kit at his house. So we would practice at their house and he was the drummer and mm. we didn't, we, we didn't know anything, you know, yeah, it was yeah. just pre-internet. <laughs> It might be hard to imagine, but there once was a time before Bandcamp or Spotify where you couldn't instantly confirm if an album was just as good as its cover. This moment in time made for fantastic surprises and costly mistakes. Examples of this from my own personal experience include buying albums such as UK Punk's Angelic Upstart's misguided foray into New Wave, called Still From The Heart, or the hard rock-styled second album by Boston Straight Edge band DYS. Nevertheless, it resulted in kids ingesting a lot of random shit and forming their own aesthetic. When Brian got into punk in the late 90s, he got the last taste of this era, which influenced the musical direction he and his friends would take. This is like 1997, so you know I'm sure it existed at that point, but like me and my friends didn't have it then yeah. for another year or two. So it was like the end of the purest of that yeah. stuff, you know, yeah. just being like, I know nothing, all I know is like, if you get something and it looks weird or somebody recommends or suggests something, yeah. that was it. And yeah. we were like, like super hungry for anything we can get our hands on. Yeah. It was exciting, it was fun, it was yeah. weird. And yeah, this definitely is the, the last time, uh, like little pristine moment before like someone could just be like, oh, like I'm interested in this band. There, I have all their discography. Click. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and by no means my opposed to that. I think it, no, com no, it comes either. with, a, a, yeah. you know. It's just a different, things change as time goes it on. Is. I, how you how you digest them. Yeah, yeah, I feel fortunate that I had a tiny little bit of when that. Same, 
thing with like when I started collecting records, it was just before like eBay came around. It was just mm. like I'm glad I got to experience that for a minute. The excitement of like yeah. finding something in the wild, like you know, just genuinely being like, this was sitting here. I picked it up. There was nowhere yeah. to be to pop in, see yeah. how much it was worth, and charge me that exact amount. Yeah, everything Fun. was yeah. yeah. Uh, it was like you know the very end of the wild west of of yeah. punk. Yeah. <laughs> When the internet came into play during the early 2000s to make these moments of chance and circumstance obsolete, it was something of a double-edged sword for those interested in the nooks and crannies of underground culture. Sure, all those rare punk singles you needed were just a keystroke away on eBay, but it also meant punk was being quickly absorbed into the mainstream. Brian and his friends took advantage of this bizarre glitch in time by covertly riding the wave of attention the new punk market would receive at the start of the decade. I just thought of something that Binky told me, I don't know. I, he said it was somebody from the Nightbirds. Was there something where you guys did something with, M- like, not the Nightbirds, but maybe Psych to Die uh, with MTV or something? TLC? I was oh, in a TLC, okay. that might be the thing that yeah. he's referring to. Um, I was in a band called Snakebite, and this was like beginning of Forward to Death era, kind of ish. Mm. And um, a friend of mine was interning at TLC, like the Learning Channel. Yeah, yeah. And they were doing a show called A Makeover Story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, like, you know, normally it's one person that mm. like they, I don't know like couldn't afford whatever it takes to look like a Wall Street person and then mm-hmm. they would get made up to look like a Wall Street person and uh, he pitched the idea of like hey what if we like made over a band mm-hmm. like what if we just got like a schlubby looking band and made them look like Good Charlotte or like uh-huh. whatever you know Guns N' Roses or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. So he like told us about it, and we like shot a like fake submission video uh-huh. where we're wearing like sweatpants and stuff, and we're just <laughs> like, you know, we we playing like a punk rock band, but we want to be successful like Good Charlotte, mm. but we just don't look the part, and we can't like mm. afford to get the like duds to like yeah, do yeah. it, and uh, obviously he like pushed our submission video through, mm. and uh, TLC like just bought it. And we ended up like doing a shoot and having an episode on a makeover story on the Learning Channel. Uh, it was like a four-day shoot. We got like tattooed at Stigmas from Agnostic Front <laughs> yeah, shop yeah. in the city. And uh, I remember that specifically, like day two of that shoot, like going in there and him, you know, thinking that it was real. Like the yeah, back, yeah. we're like, why wouldn't he? And we like got there and he like kind of looks at us a little bit strange and he like looks at all the camera crew and he's like, you. Come here, come with me for a second. I'm like, all right. We like going back. He's like, what's going on? Like, you got you. you want to scheme here? Yeah, boy? I'm not gonna do a stigma impression because yeah. it would just be rude. But he was like, well, what's what's the deal? Like, yeah. you you guys want to be like good Charlotte? And I'm like, what? And I was like, actually, I was like, you know, I, I love Agnostic Front. Like, I know yeah. like Underdog and Kraut. And I was like, I yeah. like New York hardcore. Like, I'm. Yeah. He's like, what? How do you how do you know that stuff? And I'm like, because we're like hardcore kids. Like, we yeah. actually like that's our shit. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, we're kind of, this is kind of just a, a goof, you know, mm-hmm. like we just thought it was funny and we're just going with it to get like tattooed <laughs> and some like free clothes. Honestly, we're just doing it to like hang out and like eat pizza and we just think it's funny. Yeah. And uh, he 
loved it. Like, <laughs> ate it up, thought it was the coolest shit in the world, like, came out and was basically like, all right, camera crew, you have, like, 30 minutes that you could be here to shoot, you know, like, get a little bit of filler footage, and yeah. then we'll tattoo these guys all night, but we want you guys out. So they shot for a little bit, and then he, like, kicked them out, and then, like, bought us pizza. Like, he had some records. I bought uh, I bought his Crumb Suckers Life of Dreams album. Yeah. And I was just like, I have this, but I'm going to buy Stigma's copies. Yeah, yeah, He's exactly. selling records, yeah, yeah. and that's cool. Uh, invited us to, like, a party with Biohazard after. Like, <laughs> oh, dude, it was, like, so fun. Yeah, it was, like, kind of like that. And then we were outside... Maybe it was like CBs or something, and like the host of the show. Uh, oh no, no, no! It was when we were gonna go get tattooed. She was like, "Yeah, you're gonna go get tattooed by the by the owner is in a band called Acoustic Front." And we <laughs> and we were like, "Yeah, we love Acoustic Front. They're they're the best." And like, you know, we just like totally like ate it up. And like, Forward to Death had played CBs like a week before that or something. Yeah. And then we're standing out. She's like, "Do do you know what?" you know what building is across the street and we're like no we have no idea she's like it's cbgb's home of legendary urge overkill and we're just like yeah of course like urge overkill you know just like of all bands of all bands yeah we were like what in the hell so like we were walking in there and there's footage of us like uh, you know on the show walking in and the drummer of that band being like hey look there's a forward the death sticker you know we had just said like we've never been there Shut of up. course we've never been there it's like you know yeah, but yeah. at that point it was like Every Sunday, it wasn't. It wasn't, you know, yeah, yeah, T-shirt like, city yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like a shitty. Still, you know, like, oh, this used to be a legendary place that now is just a hole that does like yeah. half attended Sunday yeah. matinees that nobody gave a fuck about because before yeah. they did those banging ass and going yeah. out of business shows. Yeah, yeah, that's what that place was for yeah. years and years. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, so that's, that was a thing that that is that's happened. funny. It was funny. Yeah, I do. I do picture stigma like. <laughs> What's your scheme here, Pally? What's yeah. going on here? Like, yeah, of course. But like, you know, well, initially flick, flicking a nickel in the air because <laughs> he didn't want he didn't want to do it. I think is what the thing was. Like they had signed on, like uh, they like agreed to do it, and then like we got there and he's like, I don't want to do this. This sounds it's shitty. Yeah, like yeah, I don't yeah. want my store to be attached to this. And but like we were kind of there, and he's he was just eyeing us up, and he's like, this, this doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but it was just us there at the beginning. They're like, so what are like your influences? And uh, something along the lines of like, oh, you know, like. Good Charlotte, Sum 41, The Germs, but, you know, and then, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. they wouldn't know the difference, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, uh, I don't know, and then I remember, like, it coming out, and somebody posting it on YouTube, and people just, like, trashing it, be like, these guys suck, blah, blah, <laughs> and then, like, our friends would be like, no, it's a joke, and it's so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> After participating in shit shows such as this, Brian found the perfect melding of the many influences he was taking in when he formed Nightbirds in 2009. The unique combination of the tightly wound Southern California beach punk sound of the adolescence and Agent Orange, and the suburban Weisenheimer vibe of their New Jersey hardcore pioneers like Adrenaline OD and Bedlam, gained the band immediate attention. How do you end up, how did the Nightbirds come together out of all that? Uh, very quick history would be I did my very first band, uh, 
did it for a long time, longer than we should have, but again, didn't know any better. Mm. Uh, befriended all of the Tear It Up guys in that mm. period, and then out of that, started a band with Andy from Tear It Up when I, I, Tear It Up was probably on their way out or already done. We started Forward to Death, realized what like a band that I actually enjoyed doing with my friends, you know, I was kind of like, oh shit, this is what this is yeah. supposed to be like and feel like. Learned how to tour, learned how to do all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, once I, because, you know, I taught myself kind of how to play guitar, mm. and then I kind of taught myself how to play drums for Forward to Death. Mm. Um, I had sang in a band, so I was like, I know how to do all this stuff, so now I can just do a million bands, because there's mm. no, you know, whatever, I'll just do a band with anybody. Mm. Probably did between 10 and 12 bands. Um, and eventually, I, so I started doing Psych to Die and Nightbirds like the same exact time. And Nightbirds was having... Like, we hadn't quite gotten a lineup that was totally set yet. Mm. Uh, so I was kind of like, where do I put the bulk of my time? And I put it behind Psych to Die because we had a lineup that was, like, ready to go. Mm. Um, and Mike from the Ergs uh, actually sang and played guitar in that. And he was, like, writing a bunch of songs. So we had material. And it was like, cool, let's go. So we went on a couple tours, put out a couple seven inches. Mike ended up moving. I was still kind of, like, doing a little bit of Nightbird stuff. I think at that point we had kind of, like, sussed out, like, a lineup. Um and then just put all my attention on that. Things kind of clicked, and then 10 years went by. So was there any kind of uh, game plan as far as Nightbirds go that would be make it different than what you were doing with the previous bands? Was there like a conscious like sound, vibe, etc.? At the very so Joe was the Ergs were almost done, like they were they had announced they were breaking up and it was coming to an end, and I yeah, still he's one of the greatest bass players I've ever seen mm. play bass. So mm. I was just super keen to play with him. I. I think he was working at maybe a TDT screen printing mm. with me, and we were kind of like kicking around the idea of like doing something. And I was like, let's let's do a band, let's do like a melodic, like a naked ray gun, adolescence, you know, some melody, yeah. speedy, sixteenth note, like you know, punk mm. rock, aggressive yeah. kind of stuff. And he was like, I'm super on board for that. Let's yeah. do it. And at the beginning, it was two of the guys from the Degenerics. Yeah. Um, Craig was gonna sing, and Frank from the Degenerics was gonna play guitar. I was playing drums, and Joe was playing bass. And that was like we wrote the first few songs like that. But basically, time went by. Still yeah. had a couple songs. Maybe I couldn't pull the drums off, but still wanted to do the band. So I think mm. I, I obviously ended up singing. Uh, we ended up getting my friend Chris to play drums. But no, I mean, yeah, we definitely had like a little bit of a direction. We knew we wanted to be like an aggressive, speedy, uh, I don't want to say melodic punk, because that could be taken in such a yeah. weird way. But, um, you know, our love of that stuff. Naked Raygun mainly was like... Yeah man, let's do a band that sounds like Raygun, like to the best of our ability, and I certainly mm. can't sing like Jeff Pizzotti, but yeah. um, that's what we were both like really stoked on. And, you know, it, that's all you needed at that point to do a band was like, hey, you're really good at bass, and we both like this band. Want to do a band that yeah. sounds like it? Yeah, hell yeah. Also, at least to me, that it kind of um, struck into a, a vein that was distinctly uh, New Jersey. Jersey. 
Like there was definitely like, even though it might it might not have sounded like it, there was a uh, s- suburban wise ass mm-hmm. vibe to it. Like sure, an AOD ish. Yes, and kind I of mean, thing. Ergs loved AOD. Like that was no secret when we started doing it that we like respected the Jersey yeah. Bozo aesthetic, yeah. <laughs> Detention, and all those bands. Yeah, like yeah. we absolutely love that stuff. And the other thing that was like uh, awesome, like that we were both really excited about at that time was um like the whole no way grave mistake yeah, yeah. like government warning direct control like all those bands yeah. you know were starting up and I feel like it was like maybe before they even started coming up here like discovering that stuff and kind of shifting gears from going to more of the like the straight you know at that point it was like mental and righteous jams and that kind of yeah, like yeah, Boston yeah. stuff and I, I liked a lot of that stuff but those shows were getting like just more and more violent more and more crew mm. gang yeah, yeah. related kind of stuff um was definitely losing interest mm. like for the first time since I had been to punk just being like oh man like this sucks like I can't hang with this you know yeah, like yeah. I, I like these bands and stuff but all of a sudden kind of finding that stuff career suicide all those bands yeah. and being like holy shit like there's this whole scene that's kind of picking up yeah. you know all the you know, circle jerks and stuff that we love and they're yeah. like they're doing it genuinely and incredibly mm. and then going to see those bands befriending all those people uh, so that was definitely a, a motivator to be like, we, you know, we want to do a band that sounds like this that can play with all these bands. We want to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, our first first seven inch was a split release between Dirt Nap because the Ergs were doing stuff with Dirt mm-hmm. Nap, and of course we loved you know Marked Men and the Exploding Hearts and all that stuff uh, and Great Mistake. You know, mm-hmm. so it was like we kind of were born into that stuff. Yeah. Which was exciting for us, and we were super stoked to be a part of. Yeah. And there was also like you know there was. Uh, like the Seinfeld <laughs> references and like yes. stuff like that that did. It was like, oh, like this is reminiscent of that. Yeah. Like the goofy. Yes. Yeah, Jersey suburban thing that you can't shake no matter how much you try. Right. <laughs> yeah. And we love it also. So we kind of, you know, bought into that whole yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, yeah. Yeah. So it was the combination of, I, you know, I've never really laid it out in such specific terms. But yeah, I guess it was the Jersey Bozo meets wanting to be a part of all that Richmond, D.C. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, meets our just love for the early 80s melodic stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, I guess those would be the elements. Yeah. In the band's now 10-year existence, they've spit out a hefty amount of vinyl as well as toured with the likes of U.S. punk legends like The Descendants and NoFX. But beyond those accomplishments, what strikes me most about Nightbirds is how they've kept their sound potent and fresh along the way. Brian's theory on this success? A regular turnover of band members. The other thing that I think uh, propelled things on just a coincidental uh, basis were like, there was personnel change as things mm-hmm. went on. So it was like, you know, we did the first record. By the time we got to the second record, um, Mike, our guitar player who plays on the first album when things were like really surfy and he had a really specific yeah. sound, 
we, we were writing some songs that sounded a little bit more straightforward hardcore that wasn't so much his style. So he left the band. We got PJ, who's been in the band yeah. for the past chunk of years, and that was his, I mean, that's his bread and butter. That's when he grew up, you know, just sitting in his room by himself, learning how to play every single one of those, like, more intense California aggression and, yeah. like, stuff like that. And that was his, that was his shit. Yeah. And, like, we saw, like, one of Mike's last shows on guitar, we played with, uh, yeah, I didn't know PJ, we were, his, his band Fives mm-hmm. was opening for Nightbirds, and saw them, and I was like, holy shit, I'm like, let's get that guy, yeah. and then we can just kind of, you know, not a great change of direction, but start mm-hmm. doing, like, you know, the song Born to Die in Suburbia isn't a song I think, I think we had it before that, but it wouldn't have really worked on, like, the first record. <laughs> PJ joins the band, and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we could just slightly do more of this stuff, but still do the old stuff. Um, and then for that second record, it was like it just kind of happened. It wrote itself, and we felt great about it, and had all these songs, but without that personnel change, wouldn't have gone like that. Yeah. Um, and then third record was a drum swap personnel. Our first drummer, Ryan, great drummer, had a very specific style, but there was stuff that I don't think would have translated as well without having Derek, the guy that we have that has played drums with us for the past five years or something. And then we had this like rhythm section um, that was more maybe of like the all descendants, you know, like the Carl Bill, like real locked in, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, I think we can write to this change and write to this uh, sound now. So we've always, and then on the last thing, Mike rejoined the band. So the original guitar player comes back. We did that last EP and uh, there's like throwback stuff. So. I'm not even sure if we could do another record without tossing somebody. So <laughs> it might have to be me, honestly. It might be my turn. Get a different you vocalist and then... Pull straws or something. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I bet those guys can make a great record with somebody that can sing better than me and then just write these songs with all these crazy harmonies and shit. Yeah. It'd probably be sick. <laughs> I might have to fall on the sword for this one. Jeez. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Over time, the demands of touring and making great records kept Brian away from spending time with his family, something he wasn't too psyched on. Luckily, he took his years of touring experience with the Nightbirds and turned it into a new profession that was closer to both his heart and his home. Is your full-time gig now like booking agency thing? Yep. We'll fall back on that maybe. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like, we, you know, we did 12 shows this year or something. Yeah. Like, our guitar player, uh, PJ, lives back and forth between Australia and here. Um, and I have a six year old daughter. Mm. Joe, the bass player, has twins. So, like, this year in particular was the one where we were like, oh, we are pumping the brakes. Like, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Like, there's just other stuff going on. And, uh, yeah, I was working, I was doing hardwood floors for like the time that I was 12 in the summers until, because uh, my father owned a hardwood floor place. And I would do that from the time that I was like 12 until a couple years ago. That's what mm-hmm. I always did. And then I, in the middle, I did TDT for a few years. Yeah. But inevitably fall back on the family job. Yeah. Because, you know, I didn't go to college, didn't know how to do a whole hell of a lot. Mm. Um, but I've been booking tours for 
20 years. Yeah. And eventually uh, I got laid off from that job and kind of was like, you know, I can either start waiting tables and mm. figuring out how to hustle and make money or take that time and kind of try to develop my own thing. Mm. And fortunately, I'm happy that that's what I did because it actually fucking worked, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that's where I'm at now. That's what yeah. I'm doing. It's called Wired Booking. Okay. Because uh, there's uh, there was a Nightbird song. Yeah. Uh, that I wrote that I was just like I always like the title of that, so I'm just gonna mm. snag that. I need like a one word thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly, I didn't give it a whole hell of a lot of thought. It was just like I need a name. I gotta like kind of yeah. start doing this because I picked up bands. Mm-hmm. Um. Kind of quickly at the yeah. beginning. And then, um, yeah, I started, it was like maybe 2000, the beginning of 2018-ish is when I like gave it a name and I kind of started. Beginning of this year, maybe the end of last year is when I was kind of like, oh, I need to start full time only yeah. doing Wired. We're coming up on the end of my like first full-time full year i did it all last year too but this is a year that it was 100 percent the only thing you know get up in the morning drop daddy off at school mm. make some breakfast nine o'clock punch in and yeah. do this shit for five six hours pick her up at school mm-hmm. answer a few more emails and then i love spending my time because it used to be spending 50 55 hours doing something that i didn't give a shit about yeah but i was like all right well it pays the bills i could take time off to to go on tour mm. but i'm not passionate about this shit i, I don't yeah. like it at all at one point i i had the opportunity to basically take over for my father instead of my cousin taking over the flooring company but I just wasn't I didn't want to do that with the rest mm. of my life I would have worked there forever but I was like I'm just not passionate about this enough to mm. take on this responsibility Yeah. Um, but doing my own thing it's kind of like oh shit I get to be involved with punk I get to do things the way that I want them to be done mm. and the way I, you know, I, I still think that they're even you know booking agent is such an ugly term and I honestly mm. don't use it very mm. often and it's ugly because people have made it that way. Like yeah. being shady and doing shitty things. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't have to be like that. And uh, so, I don't know. I like doing stuff like that. It feels yeah. good to still be involved with punk and have that be my, my job. Yeah. Um, as far as Nightbirds go, what is the... What's in the future? Is there anything you can mention talk about i can i can mention the only thing that we have on the docket <laughs> which is the show we're playing tonight there you go because this is the first time in 10 years that we just we don't have plans Ooh. after this we've always even if we haven't necessarily had announced shows it's been like okay we know in six months we're going to be going to europe or we know that we're going to be recording in the summer, or mm. we're going to be doing this tour, or we're going to be doing this. We have nothing mm. after this show. Um, and even this show was kind of, we tacked it on mid-year, but everything else that we did this whole year, um, we went to Europe, we played a festival in Belgium, and we played a one-off in the UK. We went out and did punk rock bowling in Vegas with like the undertones, and uh, we played a festival in Vancouver with the Spits, and uh, for the first time we got to like uh, Edmonton and Alberta. So like we did stuff this year that like, fun you know, it was like 12 yeah. shows but it was like very selective and then this show um got mentioned a, a few months ago and i kind of liked the 
full circle jersey aspect of like I said yeah. first records I bought were at like Ari's shop and I was yeah. like oh that's that's cool I was like I, I like that I was like you know we've never played with them I was like let's let's do that um, but that was like a tack on to like the end of plans yeah. okay. so uh, yeah I don't know oh. it's a pretty anticlimactic way to end it sorry <laughs> I think I think it's actually pretty climactic not have we could this could be our last show that is tonight true. could very well be our last show I. Strongly doubt. I don't know why it would be, but but it could. Sure. All right. We don't have plans. It's the we first time. It. Yeah. It's down. So definitely last show tonight. If you didn't get tickets, <laughs> you're screwed. And this is coming like a month afterwards. Yeah. So you are. You already fucked. missed it. Yeah. We're already we're already broken up. <laughs> already broken up on drugs, or dead. Yes. Or all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Check. Check and check. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Brian. You can check out his record-collecting Instagram at Ancient Artifacts, all one word. Uh, artifacts with an X, because that's punks. And the Nightbirds at night-birds.bandcamp.com. And don't forget, if you become a paid subscriber to Sandpaper Lullaby, you will get access to the complete uncut interviews we conduct for the podcast, as well as other bonus content. It's only $6 a month, and we know you can afford it. Keep your ears open for future episodes with James Schneider, director of DC punk documentary, Punk the Capital, and Brian Baker, guitarist for Minor Threat, Dagnasty, Bad Religion, and currently Beach Rats and Fake Names. Elliot Muka is the producer of this show. I am Tony Rettman, and thank you once again for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. When I say you say Talking Revelation Records, folks. Established in 1987, Rev are the true independent hardcore specialists. Whether it's the earlier classics from Gorilla Biscuits, Judge, Youth of Today, Bold, Inside Out, Shelter, and others, or the 90s bangers from Texas is the Reason, Far Side, Into Another, Quicksand, and so many more, Rev has covered it. Go to revelationrecords.com and start today. Go to RevHQ for a deeper dive into all things punk and hardcore and beyond. RevHQ carries releases from labels such as Dark Ops, Bridge Nine, Equal Vision, Deathwish, and more. Do you wear clothes? Rev has it. Make a change? We hear you. New website in the works. Stay tuned. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. <laughs>